When we use words like lucky or fortunate, what do we really mean? Well, if you've gone to church for any length of time, you would probably substitute those words with the word blessed. Well, today in James, Myron shows us that our blessing comes not just from hearing the word of God, but doing the word of God. Here's Myron with week five of our series in James. Well, good morning. We're going to be continuing the study through the book of James. And uh, I want to just, I want to ask you this question. What do you think of if I say, think of somebody who is lucky? Or that is a lucky man, or that's a lucky woman. Do you cultivate some image in your mind of what you would say is a, is a lucky person? I think about like, you know, the $1.25 billion Mega Millions right now. That would be pretty lucky. <laughs> you know, to win that's like a 1 in 40 billion chance of winning that thing. But man, like the people who've won those things or have somehow, uh, you know, had that uh, freak chance event happen in their life, we go, man, they're just so lucky. Or we might use this phrase, I mean, they're just so fortunate, like they've had such great fortune in their life for whatever reason, they're a fortunate person. And uh, really, like when we think about the idea of lucky or someone being lucky, like it doesn't mean, or, or fortunate, doesn't mean they don't have hard things in their life. Doesn't mean that their life is perfect and they don't have any bumps or problems because every single human being at one point in time will die. That's kind of unlucky. <laughs> It's kind of like unfortunate that all this wealth or all this stuff that they've acquired, like they really can't take it with them. So it's not like they're that lucky. But we look at some people's lives and say they're more fortunate or really we might use this word blessed. And the Bible uses this word blessed, but we don't use that in our vocabulary a lot of times unless you're, you know, super churchy or religious person or work for a church or but really we might use the word they're lucky or they're fortunate and the Bible would, would use that as being blessed. And some of you are like, Myron, there's no such thing as luck with God. Okay, you're right. But I'm just in, the, in, in our culture, the word lucky or fortunate is a better substitute for the word blessed that the Bible would use. And typically when we think about this idea, it's usually in regards to materialistic things. Like the $1.25 billion jackpot or that house that they have. They're so lucky to have that house on that piece of property or they got that car or they travel across the, the world and they go all these adventures. They're just so lucky to be able to do, do that. But here's the thing about fortunate or being lucky or being blessed is it's more than just materialistic things. You see, it can be about being content in all circumstances and having joy that is deeply rooted in personal satisfaction coming from God. So it's not just materialistic, but it can be deeper than that. And this passage we're about to go over today in the book of James indicates that we can increase our chances of being blessed by the decisions and the actions that we do. It seems that James seems to paint a correlation between we have some influence in the blessing that we will have in this life. And now, if you know Jesus, right, if you've put your faith in Jesus for the death, or his, in, in his death for the payment of your sin and the resurrection, confirming he was God, and you put your faith in that, you are the luckiest person on the face of the planet. You are the most blessed person on the face of the planet because you've been adopted into God's family through Jesus' substitution on the cross for you, and you are incredibly blessed because of that. And God will complete the good work that he began in you one day in eternity to where you will be made whole and complete, no more sin, no more pain, no more heartache. That is happening one day in eternity, and you are so fortunate if you know Jesus and have a, a, a relationship with him. This passage isn't talking about, in light of eternity, the blessing. This passage is talking about the day-to-day -day grind of having experiences and life and possession and satisfaction, contentment, joy and peace. There's a correlation James is going to unpack to having that in the day-to-day -day life of having blessed. Because the reality is, is for those of us who follow Jesus and have an intimate relationship with God, regardless of what happens in our life, we can look at our life and go, man, we are fortunate and we are blessed. Even in the darkest valleys that we walk through, the hardest things of pain and trauma and evil and, and heartbreak that happens or, or we navigate through, we can look at that situation and go, in spite of that, man, I'm still blessed because I know God and he's made me grateful for what I do have. I'm a lucky person. And so if you want to be blessed, 
in this life and in the next, James is going to give us the secret. How do we get there? How can we align our life in such a way that we can receive God's blessing? So James 1, verses 21 through 25 is where we'll be. If you have your Bible, James 1, verses 21 through 25, five verses today. And I'm calling this the cycle of blessing. There are three things that we can do, I believe, to increase our chances, so to speak, or have some influence in the blessing that we will have living inside the will of God. It's a three-step process. Now, it's not like a three-step process of do one, two, and three, and you're done. It's a three-step process that it's a rinse, rinse, repeat, rinse, recycle, and repeat. Do it over an infinite amount of times. You go through step one, two, and three. It's like a musician. Anybody play an instrument? Or have been trained musically? No. Wow. Only the band members know how to play. Wow. That's why you guys are sitting there. Okay. We, uh, if you play an instrument, you, you don't just sometimes pick up the instrument and just start playing it, do you? You have to learn how chords work and how music structure works. And you learn the scales, right? If you're really formally trained, you learn the scales. And professional musicians... I don't care how long they've been playing, will every now and then come back to the scales. The, the fundamentals of playing music to sharpen their skills and hone their knowledge and ability of playing that instrument. I think about athletics as a great example as well. Like youth sports, if you've ever coached youth sports or have kids that are interested in youth sports, they just want to start shooting the three-pointer right away. Or they want to start dunking right away. Or they want to hit a home run right away. It's like, hold on, man, before you ever get to that point, of athletic ability, you got to start with the fundamentals, the mechanics of how to uh, uh, you know, move your body in a way in which can achieve that ultimate goal. I think about Michael Jordan. Kids want to dunk from the free throw line like Michael Jordan. It's like it's not going to happen until you work on the fundamentals of the game. And professional athletes constantly go back to the fundamentals to hone their skill, to, to, to uh, compete at their highest level. I'm reminded of Michael Jordan in the in this, because if you don't know his story, he's the greatest, he's the greatest basketball player of all time. You can fight me in the lobby afterwards. He is, hands down. And then he got cut, not cut, he, he didn't make the varsity team his sophomore year of high school. The greatest basketball of all time is sophomore in high school didn't make the varsity team. And you know what his mom said? This is how the story goes. You know what his mom said to him? Try harder. <laughs> Try harder. Work harder. And Michael took the advice to heart, and he became one of the hardest working, fundamentally driven basketball players to become the greatest of all time. And in our spiritual life, it is the same way. There are fundamentals that James is going to unpack, that the Word of God teaches us that we can unpack all the time. If you apply these to your life, go back to the fundamentals, you will live a blessed life. You will have a fortunate life. You could even say you were a lucky individual, and you keep doing them, you keep going back to them. 1 Timothy 4.8 says this, For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Physical training is of good value, but it pales in comparison to spiritual training, which brings value now and forever. So more than the fundamentals of athletics or music or our career and our workplace, going back to those things, come back to the fundamentals of faith. And you will enter into the cycle of blessing and living inside the will of God where you will have a life better than what you could manufacture on your own. And if we do what James says today, I promise you that there will be blessing in your life. James promises that we will be blessed in all that we do. And I don't think there's a person in here or who listens to this message who would go, I, I, I don't want a blessed life. I don't want to be fortunate. We all want this. And it's not just mere materialistic, but it's in joy and peace and comfort, security, depth of relationships, lacking for nothing. That's what we all desire, and it's inside the will of God. And here's the promise. But before we start this passage, i got to give a little bit of context because, yeah, last week we took two verses to unpack uh, anger and our temper, right? And so the book of James is written as a letter to a group of people. It's meant to be read in one fail swoop, like read the whole thing. And so these five verses is still kind of in regards to anger and how there's this fleshly desire in us when someone pushes our buttons or a circumstance happens. Sometimes we flip out and we say things and we do things and we get anger inside of us towards individuals or circumstances. And he's saying that 
uh, if you want God's blessing, that anger that's welling up inside of you is undermining the righteousness of God, which then hinders God's blessing and will to be made true in your life. And so this section is in regards to anger. Verse 20, I want to start there. We ended there last week. We'll start there this week. It says this, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. It's talking about anger undermining the blessing that God has in your life. And then it says in our section today, verse 21, therefore, anytime there's a therefore, it's always usually referring to what was previously said. So in that mindset, let's read this passage. Therefore, since the righteousness of God undermine, or the anger undermines the righteousness of God, therefore get rid of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. There's the promise. If you don't just listen and you do, and you get rid of the moral filth and evil in your life, you will be blessed in what you do. The context is all about anger. But I'm not going to go deeper on anger. Chris did a great job last week, and if you didn't hear it, go back and listen to it, how we can harness our anger to not undermine the righteousness of God in and through our life. And I'm not going to go to words and language because James is going to hit that and repeat that later on in his, in his, in his letters. But I want to step back and look at this passage from the perspective of this. Anywhere God has said to do something and our flesh doesn't want to do it, what do we do? If we want to be blessed in every aspect of our life and live inside the will of God, when God says to do something, when his word has spoken it and our flesh goes, I don't really want to do that, we're undermining the blessing in our life. So how can we align our life, not just with regards to anger, but every aspect of our life to be assured that we will have a blessed life? So here it is, the cycle of blessing. The first thing from this text is, number one, clean out the crud. Clean out the crap in your life. It comes from this. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent. Verse 21. Get rid of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent. I think about, anyone ever bought a fixer-upper home and, and kind of done some work on it? Nobody? Cool. What about, what about like a, a starter home that was just a little bit run down and maybe needed just some new carpet and... Before you can put new carpet down, what do you have to do? You got to rip out the moldy old carpet. Before you can put, take out the plaster and put in drywall, and if anyone's done that, you know, getting rid of plaster and putting up drywall, you got to rip it all out before you can put in the new. You got to clean out the crud. You got to get rid of the crap so you can rebuild and restart and create it the way in which it looks amazing and is the way that you want it to look. You got to start there. I was thinking about this. I, I was, uh, my mower was kind of acting up on me. And so I would drive it for a while and it would get hot and then it would start cutting out on me and it would just stop and then it wouldn't start. I'd let it cool down and I would start it again. It would run for a while and it would just cut out. And it felt like it was starving for fuel. So I intuitively went to, okay, fuel, got to go to the fuel system. I was like, a carburetor is the number one place to start. I'm like, I'm just going to get a new one because I don't want to rebuild this thing or, or buy a new carburetor. I look up the price of the carburetor. I go, okay, I'll rebuild it. <laughs> So I take the carburetor off and, you know, I got the parts and there's an orifice and I'm spraying cleaner in there and I'm cleaning this carburetor out the best I can. And all of a sudden I see a little hair in the small little orifice. I get a pair of tweezers and would you know it, I pulled out a huge hairball out of my carburetor. I'm like, how did this even get in there? Put it all back together, slap the carburetor on, the mower's running better than it's ever run before. You got to clean out the crap that's clogging up anything in your life so your life can be better than it ever was before. You can have a blessed life. My mower's blessed now because it's getting fuel. <laughs> it's feeling good. And your life can be the same exact way if you clean out the crud in your life. And here's where I want you to start. With the intuitive stuff. 
The Bible, James says the so prevalent, the stuff that is so prevalent, the stuff that is so obvious in your life. My mower was lacking fuel. I could just feel it and I sensed it and I knew it intuitively. You have things in your life, moral filth and evil that is so obvious that if you would just start there and clean up that crud in your life, it would stop undermining the blessing that God wants to give you in this life. I've heard it put this way, clean out all known sin. Clean out all known sin where you know, and let's be honest, you know. You know that God said it or you just know intuitively this is not the best for my life. You know, start there and get rid of the excuses and the justifications and clean out the crud in your life that's so prevalent. Start there. And here's, the, here's like this dimmer switch principle. Right? To where like, you know, a dimmer switch, you can turn the light up, you know, by rotating a knob a little bit. When you start by just turning it on and on low dim and shine a little bit of light on your sin, God will keep turning the switch up and highlighting. Now here, Myron, here's where you need to work on. Now, Myron, here's where you need to work. Myron, here's where you need to grow. Here's where you need to grow. But it won't start until you even turn the light on and let a little bit of light in the obvious stuff and deal with that. And God will keep turning the light up in your life. And here's a disclaimer. You don't have to clean the crud out of your life before God will meet you, before you can start a relationship with Jesus. Jesus is the greatest extreme home makeover person I've ever seen. And you don't have to clean the house out before they'll come and rebuild it. He'll help you clean it out. You don't have to get your mess all pretty before he will enter into your life. You can start right now and walk through the crud and the crap in your life, dealing with it together so he can rebuild you and bring something beautiful and the blessing of God in your life. But the, bless, the blessing starts when we deal with what is obvious, what we know. And some of you are just checking out Jesus, or maybe you're new to faith, and you don't know a lot of God's word. You don't know a lot about Christianity, but you know what is right and wrong. It's like we all, and we do, we're made in the image of God, and God's moral code has been written on our hearts, and we know the obvious things in our life, even if you've never read the Bible. You go, yeah, that's probably not good for me. Yeah, that's probably not good for me. Or you know what? This would be good for me. And so there's things that you should stop doing right now that you know you should stop doing. And there's things that you should start doing right now that you've been putting off that you need to do and stop doing that because you're undermining the blessing of God in your life. Because oftentimes we think that theological knowledge or deep biblical knowledge is necessary to have the blessing of God in your life. But it's not true because you can know all of Scripture but not know who Jesus is. You can intellectually fathom and understand the deep mysteries of the Bible, but you're missing out on a personal relationship with Jesus. And you lack the willingness to obey and do what it says and get rid of all the moral filth and evil that's so prevalent in your life. You see, there's a code that's written on our hearts and we know right from wrong. And as we read the word of God and we should read the word of God to know what is right and wrong and what is in the side the will of God. But all of us have a code and a standard that we know is right and wrong. If we're honest, we all have a code and standard for our own life, expectations for our own life. And if I'm honest with you, I fall short of my own standard of what I've set for myself. I come up short. We all do. The Bible says, for all fall short of the glory of of God. We all got sin in our life. And until you're willing to deal with it, don't expect God's blessing to be in your life. You know, we know that we probably should stop treating our spouse that way. We probably know we shouldn't use those words when interacting with our loved ones and especially our kids when we're disciplining them. We probably know we shouldn't use that type of language. We know that we shouldn't have unforgiveness towards a family member. We know that we probably shouldn't interact with our coworkers in that way. We know that we shouldn't be sleeping over at his or her house or apartment. We should know that we shouldn't be looking at those websites and those videos or going to those, those uh, social media profiles. We know that we shouldn't be doing those things. We know that the language that I use when I'm around those certain people is just probably not good language. We know that the gossip, when I hear it, is so good, I want to share it because it's a good story. And we know we shouldn't do it. We know that we shouldn't compare my life to someone else's life because it just seeds bitterness and resentment towards the other person for what they have and what you don't. And the jealousy because of comparison that exists, we know these things are not good for us. But yet we're unwilling to actually deal with the crud in our life. I want to go on a side tangent real quick here. 
some of us stress over the future of our life. And God, God, I want to be in your will. God, what is next for me? What's the next step? What's the future look like for me? And, we, and we're like, God, where should I go? You know, what career should I have? What school should I go to? What degree should I get? Who should I date or who should I marry? What city or state should I live in? Should we buy this house, that house? Should we private school our kids or public educate or homeschool our kids? Or, God, we need a new car. Should it be the red one, the white one? Or... Hey, my kids are all out of the house. Should I downsize now? Or my spouse is dead. I'm a widow. Like, should I remarry? God, what should I do with the future of my life? Would you show me? Would you speak to me? And we all invite God into that process because we want to live inside the will of God. I don't think there's any Christian who would, who, who can think about the philosophy of, you know, God, you know, like, I don't really want what he wants for my life. We know and understand that he's the creator of the universe. He's, he loves me. He knows what's better for me. And I want to live inside the will of God. And so we pray those type of prayer, God, would you show me? But how arrogant is, is it of us to think that God would show us what's coming if we're not living to what he's already said? He's already spoken what we should do. He's already gave us instructions. He's already showed us this is the best for your life. And if you're unwilling to obey what he's already spoken, how arrogant of us to think that he's going to speak to us of what's coming next and that we would even obey. If we're not obeying now, why would we obey when he says something that's coming in the future? And so we have to humble ourselves and live inside the will of God, doing what he says now. Because if you want to know what God's will in the future, start doing his will today and be obedient to what he's already spoken. So start obeying today. Do the obvious. Clean out the crud that's obvious that you know. And until you do that, it's like running on a treadmill. Until you really deal with what's really in your closet, the crud that's in your closet, it's like running on a treadmill. You can do all kinds of good things. You can serve on a ministry team. You can serve on two ministry teams. You can read your Bible for four hours a day. You can be in a life group. You can be in a Bible study. You can do all these. You can share your faith with every coworker at the office or wherever you work. But doing all that is like running on a treadmill. It's good for your health. It's good for your spiritual walk, but it's not really taking you anywhere. Because there's stuff that's holding us back from the blessing of God that is called sin that we're unwilling to deal with and clean out the crud. Because we just put it in the closet or we put it in the garage. We're like, you know, we'll just keep the garage door shut and our neighbors won't see it. It's fine. <laughs> we'll just put it in this closet here and God, God won't really see it here. And we think it's okay, but it's undermining the blessing that God has in your life. Start with the obvious. And here's how you do that. Point two. Second, the second step in the cycle is humbly accept God's word. Humbly accept God's word. Verse 21, the second half of James 1, 21 says this, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Humbly accept the word that's planted in you that can save you. I'm reminded of Proverbs 1, 7 says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now, this fear isn't like, I'm so scared of you, you're going to strike me with lightning. It's not that kind of fear. It's a fear out of awe and reverence and respect for who he is, the creator of the universe, the designer of my life, and we sit in awe and reverence and respect and in worship to God. And when God says jump, we say how high as we're already in the air. Our default should be, yes, Lord, I have a fear and a reverence and a respect for who you are and your word and your will. I will do whatever you say. That's where knowledge begins. But fools despise that wisdom and instruction. I'm reminded of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, which says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways submit to him and he will make your paths straight. When, when push comes to shove and you got an idea and God spoke it, when you got a fleshly urge and desire, but the word of God says this, you'll say, I won't trust my flesh. I won't trust my earthly, finite, minimal understanding of the bigger picture. And I will trust you, God, in your ways and your path will be straight. But the phrase, humbly accept the word of God, what does that actually look like? How do we actually do this? And I got one simple question to ask. Simple test, and it's this. When the word of God, what happens 
Here it is. What happens when the Bible and you disagree? What happens when the Bible and I, you can ask the question from your perspective, when the Bible and I disagree, what happens? When it says one thing and my heart and my flesh says one thing, what, who wins? Because if you're humble and you humbly receive it, you'll read that passage, you'll hear that, that sermon taught and you'll confirm that it's true by reading the word for yourself. And you go, I don't like it. Doesn't feel good. Seems impossible. Seems hard. But you go, ah, oh, you're God. You know better than me. I know you love me. I know you're good. I know you're for me. I'll trust you. And I'll do it your way. I don't like it. <laughs> Doesn't feel great, but I'll do it anyway. That's what humility is. Arrogance goes, yeah, God, you're usually right. Like, you know, 99% of the Bible, you're right. But this one, I don't know. I think you missed it. Oh, yeah, you know, that, that is applicable to everybody else, but not me. This circumstance, this one's different. I'm different. I'm special. I'm the exception here, God, because you don't really understand my circumstance in my context. I'll just do it my way. That's what arrogance says. Here's another level of arrogance that we do, I think, when it comes to God's word is we like to overly contextualize scripture so that it doesn't feel like it applies to our life today. Okay, this author wrote it in this time frame to this culture, to this group of people for this reason. So therefore it's invalid. I can invalidate it and it doesn't apply to my life. Now hear me. Context, audience, time frame is all important. But what we do often is we let those supersede the truth in God's word as rationale and justification of why it's not applicable to my life. And that's a form of arrogance that we have when it comes to the Bible and us disagreeing. It wasn't written for us. Different time, different culture, different context. Now there are things that are so obvious. The obvious things are obvious what the Bible has spoken. No one likes to be lied to. <laughs> no one likes to have their personal property stolen. Nobody likes murder. I don't think anyone is for murder. Those are obvious. But it's in the gray things of life where the word of God is speaking to it. We're like, does it really mean that? And I don't think it'll work out. I think it was for them back then. But humility goes, I'll do it. You spoke it. You said it. I'll believe it. I'll do it. And arrogance says, maybe not this time. And let's be real. We are going to disagree with the Bible. Our flesh wants nothing to do. Our sin nature wants nothing to do with the truth in God's word. It doesn't. And we will disagree with the Bible. Anybody ever read the Bible and disagreed with it? Three of us. The rest of you don't read your Bible. <laughs> we have some for sale. It's a plug <laughs> in the lobby. If I'm honest, I read the Bible. I roll up to some scripture and I go, really? Seriously, God? <laughs> Why is, this in, why is this here? Why is this in here? Like, that's hard, God. I don't think that's going to work. I can't see it. I don't understand it. I don't think it's going to work. That's really hard. But somebody who's humble and willing to receive the word of God will say, I don't fully get it, but I'll trust you. Because I know you love me and I know you're good and I know you're for me. I'll submit and I'll do what your word says. Because living a blessed life isn't surrendering to the word of God when it makes you feel good. Living a blessed life is submitting to the word of God even when it's uncomfortable and it's hard and we don't fully understand it. That's how we can interact and have the blessing of God. I liken it to this. Anybody ever bought a piece of Ikea furniture? You know where I'm going already. You buy or any, or any prefab furniture you have to assemble comes out of a box and you, you, you unbox it and you see the manuals like this thick. It's like it's a piece of furniture. I don't need the manual. I can operate a screwdriver and Allen wrench. I'm proficient. So you throw the manual away. You unpack all the pieces. And if you're like me, when I did this with my dresser, eight, eight drawer dresser. I got three kids under five at the time. Maya, my youngest, is crawling. My wife works a midnight shift. It's just me and the kids. I'm like, I'm going to tackle this thing. I can do it. I got help. They want to help. It'd be great. I lay all the pieces out, throw the manual to the side and go, I need the manual. <laughs> so I grab the manual, I start going through and I start getting the frame, you know, and there's an Allen wrench in Maya's mouth and screws are missing. I'm like, where is everything? So I have to like search the house to find all the pieces again. 
And I'm getting to where you put the drawer hardware on, right? Little metal tracks with wheels that the drawer slides into and goes in and out nice and smooth. They look all the same. I'm like, here we go. I don't need the manual anymore. Just screw these in the pilot holes. I know what screws are all the same. I put them all on inside the dresser and on all the drawers. Take the first one, go to put it in. Don't fit. Every single drawer doesn't fit because I put the wrong ones on the drawers and the wrong ones inside the dresser because I didn't consult the manual because I had pride and arrogance thinking I could do it on my own. And in the complexity of life and our spiritual life, it's like an Ikea dresser to where we throw the manual and say, God, I don't really need your instructions. There's a designer over the Ikea piece of furniture. He, whoever designed it, he or she knows how the furniture is to be built. And the Bible is kind of like the manual for life. God made us, he knows us, and he's given us instructions, per se, of how to live a blessed life. And oftentimes we just disregard the manual and say, God, I'll do it my way. But if you're humble enough, you'll pick the word of God up and say, what does it say? (laughs) What's the instructions? And regardless of what it says, I'll do it. I'll humbly accept your word. I'm reminded of the heroes of faith, some of the, the patriarchs or the pinnacle characters of the Bible. I'll give you three of them real quick. They weren't great and blessed because they had deep intellectual and theological knowledge. They didn't have the Bible like we have the Bible, 66 books together. They didn't have it. They didn't have a deeper intellectual understanding. They had great faith and obedience. First one is Noah. Builds a boat in the middle of the desert where it never rains and everyone thinking he's crazy. You're crazy, man. This is, this is wild. And Noah's like, right, yeah, sure, but God said it. I'll do it. I believe him. I trust him. And the rains came and only like his family was preserved through the flood because he had obedience, not Bible knowledge, but obedience. And I think about Abraham, the father of the faith. When God said, hey, I want you to sacrifice your own son. And, I, and Abraham's probably thinking, hold on a second. We just studied this in our Genesis series. He's the heir to my lineage, which is what you promised me, that my descendants would number the, number the stars. Like, this doesn't make sense to me, God. Why would we kill this kid? But Abraham submitted and said, I'll do it. And he gets almost to the point of doing it. And God stops him. Thank God. I'm glad my name's Myron, not Abraham. That would have been incredibly hard. But he had great faith of trusting God, even when it was confusing and didn't make sense. I think about Joshua when he led the Israelites around Jericho to crumble the city walls. I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of this story. I'm like, hold on, man. If I'm going to take over a fortress like Jericho, we need military training. We need weapons. We need to plan for like two years before we try to take this city down. And God's like, no, nah, no, nah. just walk around it seven times. No big deal. Blow some horns. It'll come down. Are you serious? Really, God? That's, that, that, that's your plan? That's what you've spoken? That's your word? That's your truth? Yeah. Trust me. So it's not about Bible knowledge per se. It's about faith. It's about obedience. It's about actually doing what he says and humbling accepting God's word. When the Bible and you disagree, who wins? Who wins? And answer to that question might just be the thing that's holding you from living a blessed life inside the will of God. The final point of the cycle of blessing is this. Do what it says. Do what it says. Do it. James 22, verse, uh, verse 22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself, but do what it says. Do what it says. Don't just hear this message. Don't just hear any sermon. Don't just hear the word of God preached. Don't read the word of God on your own and throw the manual to the side and say, that was cool head knowledge. Doesn't really apply to me. Do what it Says, And we know a, a lot of things that the Bible says to do, but yet we don't do them. Think about it in the form of generosity. And, and this church is so generous, but there might be some of us. Well, we know what the Bible says about generosity and how to manage our finances. But we go, my situation with my debt and my income and all of these things, I just can't quite do it. It's like, well, we know what he says. But yet we lack the faith and the obedience to actually do it. We know what the Bible says about being a man of integrity or a man or woman of integrity with honesty, but yet in our workplace or in our family, we got secrets and we got lies and we got dysfunction because we're not living an honest life, although we know we should, but yet we don't. This is a big one for us. A lot of us is bitterness and unforgiveness for what's happened to you by someone or a circumstance or a situation 
and it's become your identity of a victim of where, woe is me because this is happening. You can't move forward. And we've done sermons on forgiveness. You should go back and watch them. I don't have time to unpack it. But your unwillingness to unforgive and hold on to that bitterness is undermining God's blessing in your life. Because if you claim to be a Jesus follower and receive his forgiveness, it's not optional to extend it. The Bible says it's mandate. Like if you receive God's forgiveness, you got you to gotta freely disperse it to anybody who's wronged you. I know that's hard. But we adopt a victim mentality and we have bitterness, even though we know we're supposed to forgive, but yet we don't do it. And the most prevalent one, I think, in our culture is with our sexuality. We know what the Bible says. It's pretty clear what the Bible says about man and woman and sexuality. It does. But yet we don't. And so if you're single and you're having sexual interaction, you're married and, and you're having sexual interaction outside of your marriage, you're divorced and you're having sexual interaction with somebody even though you're divorced and they're not your spouse, you are living outside of God's design and what he said. And we know it. If we're all honest, we know it. But yeah, we come up with some funky excuses and rationale and justification of why we're exempt and we're not. That's the very thing that's undermining God's blessing in your life. And here's something to chew on. We think that being a mature Christian a lot of times, having a deep faith is rooted in the amount of Bible that we know. We look at someone who's got biblical knowledge or a pastor or a, a theologian or someone who leads your Bible study, like, man, they got all the right answers. They know so much Bible. They're such a mature, deep Christian. And that doesn't mean that their faith is deeper than yours. It just means they're more well-taught than you. That just means they got more head knowledge of what the Bible says. But that doesn't mean their faith is as real or as deep because they might be lacking obedience in their life. Because the reality is this faith should be measured by obedience, not by biblical head knowledge. Don't just hear it. Don't just read it. Don't just know it. But do what it says. I got three things real quick of why obedience is more important than knowledge. Obedience is more important than knowledge because there's a danger for us longtime Christians who have studied the Bible for a long period of time and we look at other Christians and go, I know more Bible than you, so therefore I'm more godly than you. And that's not true. You just know more Bible than them. <laughs> Doesn't mean your life is more righteous or more godly. Than them. We think that getting into heaven is some kind of scantron test based on how much of the word of God we know. But the requirements to get into heaven isn't a scantron, it's a blood test. And it's not your blood. It's Christ's blood shed on your behalf. And if you have that blood marking your life, you have salvation, you have eternity, you have an intimate relationship with God available to you. And so we got to be careful of thinking that Bible scholarship means deeper uh, relationship with God. It helps. Bible reading is so important. Don't hear me say it's not. But obedience is more important. And here's, the, here's, here's what I think. Here's my assumption. Sometimes Bible scholarship is used for a compensation for the lack of obedience. Where we're like, you know what? I don't really want to do this, but I'll just study the word more. I'll be more articulate and can say what the Bible says to make me look more righteous so people don't really question these gray areas of my life. And some of us, that might be some of you, thinking if I just bury, in the, bury myself in the Bible and know the word really well, it'll overcompensate for my lack of obedience. It's not true. It's undermining the blessing in God's life. James doesn't say, clean out the crud, humbly accept the word of God, and then study it more. He doesn't say that. He says, do what it says. Three reasons obedience is more important than Bible knowledge is this. Obedience is the proof that we know and love God. Obedience is the proof that we know and love God. It's the tangible fruit of our life that people can see and go, yes, man, they love God. By the, how they love others and how they submit to his will and live inside his design. They're not perfect, but man, they love God. They know God because they're being obedient to God, even when it's uncomfortable and hard. It's evidence and it's proof. Jesus says this in John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commands. Simple, right? Simple. If you love God, you'll do what he says. And it's the proof that you know God and love God. And if you lack obedience, maybe you lack knowing God and who he really is. 
Because if you realize what he's done on your behalf and you accept that into your life, your flesh will still battle. I know, I'm with you. But we do everything in our power to obey him, even with it's hard. If you love him, keep his commands. It's the proof that you love God. The second way that obedience is greater than knowledge is this. Obedience is the ultimate goal of our life's mission. If our life's mission is Matthew 28, 18, helping people find and follow God, right? Helping people know God, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then what does he say? Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. As a follower of Christ, we are to teach every, all, all people that want to follow Jesus to obey everything that he has commanded. Now, I'm not saying the Bible is fluent. We shouldn't teach people the Bible. We have to teach them what God says, yes, so they can follow it. But the greatest goal of our life's mission is to teach them to obey what God has already said. Jesus, he confronted the most biblically literate people on the face of the planet in his time, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he said this to them, and I'll paraphrase. He says, the kingdom of God is like this. Those like children who just have faith. The kingdom of God is full of children. They, they just have obedience. They just have faith. They believe. They don't have to know X, Y, and Z in the deep mysteries and theology and doctrine. They believe. And he's kind of calling them out. You guys are missing it because you've got all the head knowledge in the world. But you lack enough faith to actually live it out and to do what it says. And the third thing of why obedience is more important than knowledge, because obedience is the key to being blessed, being blessed by God. If you want the blessing of God in your life, and I think we all do, will you do what he says? He knows your life better than you know your life. He knows what's best for you more than what you think is best for you. And if you want to live inside that blessing, it's the key is being obedient. Jesus says this in Luke eleven twenty eight. 28. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Blessed are those who hear what I say, what I command, and do it. Obedience is more important than head knowledge. And here's, 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 a, here's a thing for my, the guys real quick. If you lean in with me, guys. If you're like me, I'm a guy, and I think you're like me because you're a guy. Church feels like it's feminine. It feels like it, it, it appeals to women more than it appeals to men. And I got some hunches of why. Because our worship music, which is incredible, evokes an emotional response inside of us, doesn't it? And guys are like, hey, I'm not into that. I'm not really into the whole emotion thing. Women are more in tune with their emotions. And they connect with God in a more emotional sense through worship. And guys are more reserved and they just sit here. And that's me sometimes. Here's what I'll say about me that I've had to overcome is that whether or not I like it or I feel like it, the Bible says, praise God with your lips. Praise him with your tongue. Sing along. It also says, praise him with your body. So putting your hands out or raising them to praise God for who he is is an act of worship and obedience to glorify the Father. I don't want to most times. It's not my thing. I'll sit here. But I'll do it out of obedience to praise his name with my tongue, with my voice, with my lips, and with my body in worship. But it does appeal to women more. I get that. And the other way that I think it appeals to women more than men, church, is because we place such a high Christian virtue on Bible reading. And I don't know about you, but most men and women that I know, women like to read more than men do. There are some men who are the exception who love to read and, and they find enjoyment from that and they journal all the time. They're pastors, if I'm honest with you. Like, and I'm in the wrong field, if so, because that's not me. I don't find enjoyment from reading. I don't like reading at all. If I'm honest with you, I don't like reading my Bible. Let me clarify. After I read my Bible, I love it. But I don't wake up at 6 a.m. going, man, I cannot wait to spend an hour in the Word of God. Man, I cannot wait to dive in and consume this. And girls feel like they tend to enjoy reading more. And so we place a high Christian virtue on Bible reading and Bible knowledge. And men are like, you know what? It's not really for me. It's not my scene. So guys, if you're like me, here's what I want you to do. 
Discipline yourself to read some of the word of God. But more importantly, be men of God by obeying what it says. And don't compromise in this area. And I will stand here before you saying that my life goal mission is that I would be an example for my kids more than anything. Of what it means to trust and follow and obey God. And before all of you as somebody who will do what is hard and uncomfortable as a man of God to be a leader in our community. And I'm going to call every guy to that. I know the Bible reading might not be fun and enjoyable for you, but be disciplined in it. Consume it so you know what it says, so you can live obedient to it and not undermine the blessing that God has in your life and your family's lives as you don't cut corners. We need more men to obey what God says. We need more men to be courageous and bold in what the word of God says and live it out. Church feels feminine. I get that. Let's worship him, guys. Let's read our word, guys, and be men of God. I don't like journaling either. <laughs> Although we gave you a journal for this series, I know. I'm not journaling. But I discipline myself because I know it's beneficial for my soul. And the fourth step is this. Intentionally repeat steps one through three. It's like a boys to men song. One, you like a dream come true. Two, just want to be with you. Three, it's plain to see you're the only one for me. And four, repeat steps one through three. Yeah. Maybe that's my calling, boys band. Maybe that's what I'm supposed to do. If you want to know the cycle of God's blessing, think of boys to men. Step four, repeat one through three. <laughs> Clean out the crud. Humbly accept God's word and do what it says. Let's finish out 23 through 25. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently, underline, looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues, underline, and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, underline it, they will be blessed in what they do. Don't hear it, but do it. It's kind of like the, the mirror illustration is kind of interesting. It's like we put makeup on or we do our hair or we make sure our shirt is buttoned up correctly and we, we want to look presentable. We check the mirror to make sure we look good and got our riz on. We're looking good. That was for them. And then you walk away and you're like, I don't even know what I look like. I don't even know. I don't even know what I did. I don't even know what I tried to look like. I don't even know what I tried. I don't even know what I tried. Same thing's true with the word of God. We try to know what it says and model our lives so we look like and reflect what the word of God says. And we're in church and we're in the mirror. We're in the Bible. We're in the mirror. We're in our life group. We're in the mirror. And then as soon as we leave that environment, we look like a completely different person. We forget what we even look like. I want to take the mirror illustration a little bit farther because a mirror is a reflection. And if we are followers of Christ and claim to be followers of Christ, we reflect the image of God to the world around us. And I think sometimes we forget who we are reflecting and we don't reflect the right thing to the world around us. Because we say one thing, we know one thing, but yet our life, our actions, our decisions do not show evidence or proof and reflect the image of God the way that we should and reflect Jesus the way that it should. And so would you do what it says more than just know it? Would you engage in the cycle of blessing of dealing with your crap? Humbly accept it. When you disagree with the word of God, go with the word of God. I promise you it'll work out better for you. And it takes humility to do that. And continue in doing what it says. Just continually doing it. Continually do it. And I think about this. I got a life group starting up in September here in about a month. And sometimes a mirror doesn't let you see everything about your person, does it? It's not complete enough. And here's what you need. You need some people in your life who can look at your life and go, hey, I think you're a little bit short here. 
And I think you're misrepresenting Jesus maybe here. I love you and I want you to have the blessing of God. I want you to live your best life. And that's why I'm saying this. If you don't have those types of people, you need those types of people. And they're found in life groups and they're starting next month. No excuses. <laughs> Invited in. I had a friend. I was in a room with a friend. I'm having a conversation. Another friend walks in. And this friend says to this friend, hey, my wife's not here. I need you to look at something for me. And I was like, wow, what kind of friendship is this? And I'm intrigued at this point, so I kind of follow him. I'm like, you know, what are they going to do? And he just bends over and says, I got something on top of my head. Would you look at this? And he looks at it and says, ah, you know, no big deal. It's some dry skin or whatever. But that's the types of friendships that you need. As you can go to someone and say, hey, would you look into my life intently with me? Would you help audit my life and make sure that I'm living in line with Jesus? And hey, if you ever, you have free permission anytime you see me not obeying, deciding my flesh or my sin over what God says, would you just say something to me lovingly? Because I want to live in the will and the blessing of God more than anything else. And I need you to hold me accountable. Get those kind of friends. If you want a great marriage, have that in your marriage. And if you want a great life, don't just hear what he says, but do what he says. That's the cycle of blessing. And I pray that we will be humble enough to engage in it. So, Father, would you empower us through your spirit to clean out the crud and crap in our life? Holy Spirit, would you shine the light in the areas in which we are living outside of your best? And would you give us the humility to accept it? And make a change and make an adjustment and confess our sin and repent and turn from it. And Holy Spirit, would you redeem us? Would you help us rebuild? And would you help us have accountability in walking out this life inside your will so that we can be lucky, fortunate. We can be blessed. And we would accurately reflect you, Jesus, to our workplaces, to our homes and our households to our friends and our families, to our community, wherever you would have us go, we would shine Jesus by the way that we live and the way that we love. And you would do incredible things because this group of people said yes to being obedient even when it's hard and uncomfortable and you pour out your blessing. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks for joining us on the Vineyard Church Podcast today. It's our greatest desire for people to find and follow God, and we hope this podcast is one way that helps you do just that. But don't stop here. We would love to see you face-to-face. God's people grow most in community, so don't forget you can join us live at the Capitol Theater in downtown Wheeling every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. If you'd like to connect with us in the meantime, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. You can catch up on previous messages and series, request prayer, and even download additional content. Thanks again for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.